Sheep, standing in her sheepfold, was a shepherd of the sheepfolds, growing with charm. Green, standing in her furrow, was a beautiful girl, radiating charm, lifting her raised head up from the field. She was suffused with the bounty of heaven. Sheep and grain had a radiant appearance. They brought wealth to the assembly. They brought sustenance to the land. When they entered the homes of the poor who crouch in the dust, they brought wealth. Where they stood, they were satisfied. Where they settled, they were seemly. They gladdened the heart of An and the heart of Enlil. They drank sweet wine. They enjoyed sweet beer. When they had drunk sweet wine and enjoyed sweet beer, they started a quarrel concerning the arable fields. They began a debate in the Listen to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and these are my two guests. My name is Jojo, and I'm a pleasure to have in class. I sew and work with fibers and textiles as a hobby. I'm Sammy. I'm a math PhD student and Jojo's sister. I knit and spin yarn and sew a little. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of love for textiles. We are currently listening to the debate between sheep and grain. This is a Sumerian myth uh, dating from the early 1000s BC in Iraq. So the Sumerians had a pretty good idea of their own prehistory. They started off with foraging, then later on, around the same time, they developed farming and herding, and over time these would become the basis for the state. This particular debate is between two of the pillars of the Sumerian economy. Grain, mostly barley, would have been the staple crop that provided the majority of their calories, and sheep, as their main livestock, would have provided for a massive textile sector. These also happen to be their two main methods of subsistence, uh, settled agriculture on the one hand, and semi-nomadic herding on the other. So almost all Sumerians, at least all Sumerians living in the cities where these texts were produced, would have been farmers. Sorry, they were farmers? They were living in the cities? What kind of cities were these? Well, good question. I should say Sumerian society is an agricultural society. So, I mean, a lot of people lived in the city and had nearby farms. I see. Mm. And there were also, you know, temples and palaces with large control over huge areas of farmland. Commuter farms. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you know, when you have a huge area of farmland, you need people to work. Yeah. So there's also I serfs guess. and slaves and stuff mm-hmm. living in the city or near the city, but working in the fields. Okay. Were they walking to that? Like, how far away? Just the commuter thing is really bothering yeah. me. Okay. That's 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 a fair point. It just seems like you'd want to live, I don't know, I, I want a little public transport to get me from my yeah. house to the farm. I just I feel like I would want to live closer to the farm. Yeah. yeah. Or like on the farm, yeah. but go on. I mean, to, to, I guess when this, this was a fairly late Sumerian text. So by the time they're writing this, they actually do have horses. Okay. But for most of Sumerian history, they don't have horses. Mm-hmm. So I'm imagining like a donkey. horse bus now. Okay, donkey. Yeah. Okay. But donkeys walk about as fast as you. Yeah. So yeah. everything is At least you're not doing the walking yourself, I yeah. guess. Yeah, true. You've got a lot of farm work to do. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. conserve your energy. I think the animals have a lot of farm work to do, too, true. don't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like pole plows? Yeah, Did they do that in this time? Yeah. Wow. And oxen. Yeah, let me some oxen. So the text begins before the god An creates either sheep or grain. So An is the god of heaven and the creator god, ancestor of the gods. At this point, there was no sheep which means there could be no wool for yarn, which means there could be no weaving. And as we've seen before, the text groups sheep and goats together. That makes sense to me because, as I understand it, sheep and goats are both, like, friend animals. What do you mean? Okay, well, I'm honestly kind of thinking about alpacas. Mm-hmm. We were mm-hmm. having a discussion recently about how um, if you have an alpaca, you need to get it a friend, mm-hmm. and it's cheaper to get it a goat than a second alpaca. Mm-hmm. I think. That's so cute. It is very cute. So the alpaca has a friend because it really wants one. Mm-hmm. So it makes animals. sense to me that you would have sheep and goats in the same area because they are friend animals. Same but do you mean they're grouped together like... Oh, they're grouped together categorically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. as, as like a as livestock? A, as a type of livestock. I see. So like when stuff mentions sheep, you can assume that they mean sheep and goats? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's 
that's good to know. Yeah, they're recorded together in texts. And, yeah, that's because they're, A, I mean, they're the same size. You can feed them the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, you know, the same birding practices and so on. Mm-hmm. You can have a herd with both. And also for archaeologists, their bones are almost indistinguishable. Ah, that makes it rough. So, yeah. 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 Like, I, for, I don't know exactly which bones you can tell them apart with, but mm-hmm. you find, like, a vertebrae. It's like sheep or goat. You know what's a funny vertebrae. is, I don't know, I wonder what old-timey sheep looked like. Because yeah, they I can't have been... different. Well, yeah, because they can't have been as woolly as they are now. It's right. like we've been selectively right. breeding right. them for so long. Yeah, you go back with that. Okay, cool. Dope. <laughs> Look at me anticipating the lecture. I am such yes. a good student. But did you do the reading before? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Never. Because I was thinking, are they getting milk from goats? Or are yes. they also yes. getting fur from goats? Both. Or Both. hair, Both. I guess. Is wool a hair? I'll talk about that. Okay. Uh, but yes, they are getting hair from goats. Okay. Primarily milk. Okay. They, that makes more sense because yeah. goats, the only hair you can use is on the belly, as I understand it. Unless they're like fancier goats. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure what the process is. But I do believe that there are... Okay, certain goats have really nice belly hair. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, cashmere goats. But yeah. as you can imagine, they're actually Angora goats. Oh. But they are the source of cashmere. It is really quite a conundrum, if you ask me. But I think that they the rest of their body hair is also usable. But I don't know like how but you harvest it. But it's not necessarily soft? Well, I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think it's particularly soft. I, but I think it may be strong or maybe it has a longer oh, staple. I see, or there I could be other... Mean. It may have to be combed instead of like... Or, or something instead of like shorn. So you're saying it may be less convenient to process. Yes. But also you can get milk from sheep, right? Are they mm-hmm. also milking the sheep? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Getting the most out of that. More bang for your buck. Anyway. Yeah. So the text talks about An, the god, as we mentioned. It's also going to mention Utu. So Utu is the goddess of weaving. How do they have a goddess of weaving if they haven't invented weaving yet? They're getting there. Yeah, she's working on it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Utu is not to be confused with the sun god Utu with one T instead of two. Oof. Are um, we going to have to make this distinction? Well, no. But it's like in Japanese, yeah. though, it sounds like. I guess so, yeah. yeah. For those of you following along at home, uh, two different gods. When the text mentions pegging out the loom, it's referring to the Middle Eastern horizontal ground loom. So in other words, you have two pegs on the ground and the loom is stretched out between those two bags to create. That makes sense to me. If you don't have necessarily the materials to make a frame, right. that sounds like a really easy way to mm-hmm. get done. Yeah. But how big are these rods? The, the pegs, you mean? The pegs, yes. Why does that like, matter? <clears throat> that matters to me because of the amount of fabric that you can get out of weaving on a smaller... Like, I'm imagining something like 12 inches from the ground. Mm-hmm. On that kind of limb, maybe you could get, like, a scarf I, or something. But like, Hang I, on. I think you're imagining it wrong. They've got uh, pegs, like, in, like, rows... So there, the warp is between the pegs. It's like yeah, it can be as long as you want. Yeah, you out of the ground. yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of something that takes less land. Yes, yeah. This takes okay, up a lot of floor space. Takes a lot of floor space. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be. I mean, it's like it's like once you got it down there, you got to finish that project. You know, like you're not. Yeah, I bet. You can't pack it up. Right. Can't pack it up, put it in storage, shove it in your closet, forget about it for months. Right. I sure would like to, though. <laughs> That's a joke, bro. You so much stuff there. And knitters. And knitters. They throw things in the pile on yeah. the ground. In the land, he neither fashioned the yarn of Utu nor pegged out the loom for Utu. With no sheep appearing, there were no numerous lambs. And with no goats, there were no numerous kids. The sheep did not give birth to her twin lambs, and the goat did not give birth to her triplet kids. There was no cloth to wear. Utu had not been born. No royal turban was worn. The people of those days did not know about wearing clothes. They went about with naked limbs in the land. There's also no grain, so the text refers to temples, which would have been major storage sites for grain. It also refers to Shakan, the god of wild animals. I'm going to say not to be confused with Shaka Khan. Yes. Oh, maybe. I don't know. She was in an episode of Phineas and Ferb. That's that's honestly my first exposure to her. (laughs) (sighs) There was no small grain. Grain from the mountains or grain from the holy habitations. Shakan had not gone out into the barren lands. The people of those days did not know about eating bread. Like sheep, they ate grass with their mouths and drank water from the ditches. Mm. Sounds like a good time to uh, figure out water bottles. Yes. (laughs) 
Like, I imagine, once you get some livestock. Yeah, but I think they want the sheep for that, too. Oh, they don't have it yet. No, they got water skins. Yeah, water. Want yeah that's, what, that's what I'm yeah. talking about. I'm talking about but I'm pretty water sure, bottles. Okay, but I'm pretty sure I'm about to explain to you that I'm providing them with the water bottles. I believe that that's what I said, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. They don't have the bladders for their water bottles, so that's, that's all. Just that water bottles, also not a thing yet. They're drinking out of ditches. I think it's pretty fitting that you are the queen of water bottles. Oh, thank you. Yes. yes as the sheep. Yeah, not like... Yeah, okay. So... In this mythical time before sheep, the people themselves act like sheep in a way that recalls Enkidu in episode four. I disagree. Okay. With saying that people are like sheep. The myth is telling us that in this in this time before sheep, the people were acting like sheep. They're and it was like and water from ditches. Yeah. And that it was like lame sauce. It's like this, they're like running around naked. They're fucking on all fours. You know what? Okay, me. I guess I can't disagree with you. Sitting that. in the grass. They are acting kind of like sheep. Yeah. yeah. They ate grass with their mouths and drink water from the ditches. That's what the legend says. Yeah. They ate the grass with my mouth. I ate yeah. arugula with a fork. Yeah, with a fork, though. Yeah, yeah, with a fork. <laughs> also, for the record, at the beginning of that line about uh, eating grass with their mouths, it says like sheep. Yeah, critically, there's a yeah. simile. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This reflects a dichotomy between free citizens and slaves in Sumerian society. So your status in the social hierarchy would be dependent on the existence of a lower status. Um, I agree with that. Whoa. Then, you know, yeah, you can't be a citizen of a civilized city-state if there aren't slaves and barbarians around you. And this, of course, recalls the invention of manual labor in pretty much every myth we've talked about, where the god creates uh, labor projects for people to do. The invention of manual labor. Never even thought that that needed to be invented. Yeah. It's some bullshit. Well, yeah, for example, uh, Atrahasis from episode one, Ninurto from episode two. Well, yeah, you know, when Ninurto triumphs over the monster of you know disorder... He creates irrigation projects and makes people dig ditches. And okay. Our people drink from ditches. Aha. You think they invented the irrigation before they invented Yeah, to, to grow crops. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's where we're going. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, and also the bit about eating grass. They may or may not have known, they probably did know, that grain, you know, barley and wheat were domesticated from wild grass. And, you know, before they were domesticated, people literally did eat the seeds of wild grass. Okay, hang on. What do we mean that they maybe or maybe didn't know that? Like, didn't they domesticate it or was well, it just over? I mean, when so they're writing it down, ago? it's the early mm. second millennium BC, and the domestication would have happened in the ninth or eighth millennium BC. Oh, I see. So it's, it's, it's been you know, a minute. Thousands and thousands of years ago. So, it's yeah. been a hot minute. Right, right, right. But yeah, yes. they, they might. Well, because, like, you know, there was never a period when all humans were naked, mm-hmm. but poetically, That's they create right. the opposite of civilized life. And say, right, because this is a myth. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's literature, yeah. So, you know, they might have person who doesn't read very much. just gotten lucky. It's like, well, what's the opposite of us? Well, we don't, you know, the opposite would be doesn't grow grain, doesn't raise sheep, doesn't wear clothes, etc. Mm-hmm. So they Same might though. have just looked into it. No forks for eating their arugula, etc. Mm-hmm. You can eat arugula with your hands if you want. Mm-hmm. So the gods are feasting, but they can't quench their hunger because in order for the gods to be sated, they need humans to sacrifice human food for them. So quench their hunger? Can't satisfy Sate? It's, it's yeah. for, I don't know. I would only, but uh, but I'm not sure. That's fair. I would um, use it for drinking beverages, but if they're making smoothies, I think that counts. That's both lunch <laughs> and a beverage. I don't know that they had invented the Nutribullet. <laughs> If you got sheep, you got a blender, you got a protein shake. What can I say? Well, you get whey protein from hacking around with milk. Yeah. I would say sate for hunger, but that's just me. That's fair. Well, that's also me. Yeah, so what, what I should say is that the gods are feasting, but they can't satisfy their hunger. And this recalls the Telepina myth that we read a joke of last time. Oh, heck yeah, let's get some chickpeas in this. Yes. So in other words, you know, because the real-life economy of uh, Sumer relied on temple offerings, the mythological cosmos of Sumer requires humans to grow grain and raise livestock and sacrifice them for temples. So, in other words, in order to solve their hunger problem, the gods create sheep and grain for humans so that humans can sacrifice them. Is this because the gods don't want to learn how to cook? 
Yes. Well, I mean, oh, yes. God. The, the social allegory is that gods are like lords and kings. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, they don't I have to guess. Come, yeah, maintained by uh, the common people. Wait, so what were they eating before? Before. The, the, what were the gods eating before? That's a good question. It doesn't say. Okay. Because, like, what were they, they were feasting, but they couldn't sate their hunger. Right. It doesn't say. Okay. Mm. Mm. Don't like it. I'm sorry. But okay. Yeah. Yeah, tell so a chickpea new. going to, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's going to mention the holy mound, which is the ziggurat, in other words, the mound on which the temple is built. You know, mythologically, the gods lived on a mythologically giant temple mound mm-hmm. with them kind of based in your Olympus. A very climbable object, yes. as we understand it. Yep. Yep. They yep. could have gone up there and found yep. out. Yep. Critically, it was real climbable. <laughs> <laughs> real heckin' climbable. <laughs> with their own well-being, in the holy sheepfold, they gave them to mankind as sustenance. So the gods aren't altruistic. You know, they create human wealth so that they can eat. I kind of get that idea from the whole, like, yeah. creating labor strata. Yep. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, like... What's the point of that in a myth? Is it like so that you're not setting up expectations that hmm. like the lords and kings and whatever are going to be altruistic? Like that's probably part of it. Yeah. Okay, it just seems like a weird thing to do to like you know make up this justification myth to like say like here's why you guys are serfs and slaves and mm-hmm. such. Mm-hmm. The gods don't really care about you; they're looking after themselves, yeah. and you also, for some reason, should be motivated to look after them. Yeah. Well, because they're gonna yeah they're gonna send natural disasters. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess yeah. natural disasters is oh like, not that... something we're super prepared for. I thought the point. gods history i seem to remember from this is like all i remember from history Hmm. classes that in like mesopotamia the gods were kind of like looking out for the people whereas like in egypt the gods were like mean or maybe it wasn't the other way around around. yeah i'm sure that's not but like that was like one of the kind of things that i remember being pointed out what i would like to add to this is that history and books Mm -hmm. are written by people as i understand it (laughs) who have a lot of spare time Mm -hmm. who have a lot of spare time don't need to work Mm -hmm top of the food chain. I mean, these, these specifically would have been written by temple scribes. So like very near the top of the food chain. Very comfy white collar job. Mm-hmm. And crucially, the texts are sponsored by the temple. So they're not going to be a myth about how the gods owe you all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They're going to be a myth. They're, they're going to write myths about how you owe the gods all the stuff. I and, see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the gods send sheep and grain down to earth and that fit them with everything they'll need to thrive. The sheep and grain? The sheep and grain, yeah. Okay. At that time, Enki spoke to Enlil. Father Enlil, now sheep and grain have been created on the holy mound. Let us send them down from the holy mound. Enki and Enlil, having spoken their holy word, sent sheep and grain down from the holy mound. Sheep being fenced in by her sheepfold, they gave her grass and herbs generously. For grain, they made her field and gave her the plow, yoke, and team. This is Yannick if I ever heard it. I know. Yeah. Like, why are we calling it the holy mound? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I just feel like everything was horny, you know? <laughs> yep. What else were you going to do back then? I mean, in a more serious... What? Oh, yeah. Always with the hoop and the stick game, yeah. (laughs) Always with the hoop and the stick game. Yeah, let's let's glib. I mean, it was all about reproduction, baby. Like, I guess. And the temple carers, they were okay with everybody just being really focused on... uh, Dude, yeah, that's production. Oh my god, they were the ones. The they holy were like people hosting are the, the horniest parties. Yeah. Come on, no, yeah. you know they're obsessed with reproduction. I have not looked into it yet. But you there know what? Is a, you were so right. Like ceremonial, it's called the hierarchy of the holy marriage, where either the priestess actually has sex with the king, or they have a some kind of ritual that symbolizes sex between the king and mm-hmm. the goddess Anana. Mm-hmm. So it's a thing. Yeah, yeah people were yeah. making things about sex. Like the first thing you do is make it about sex. You know? I guess. Yeah. Because it's about creating the labor audience. force. Yeah. That's called the labor force. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Oh. Yeah, it's like the uh, contractions when you're giving birth. That's labor force. Hey. So now we have the passage that we read at the beginning. Sheep and grain are both beautiful, charming, and radiant. They bring wealth and happiness wherever they go. And then they get drunk and start fighting. 
So That's where we come in. <laughs> so Green goes first, points out that she is central to political leadership. Hell yeah. You know, also the main part of provisions for soldiers on campaign, Prussian historical analysis, both of which we'll talk about later. So the Sangrasang is a priest of the goddess Anama, and the Anuna gods refer to the Andunaki, the great gods from the Atrahasis. Green called out to sheep. Sister, I am your better. I take precedence over you. I am the glory of the lights of the land. I grant my power to the Sangrasang. He fills the palace with awe, and people spread his fame to the borders of the land. I am the gift of the Anuna gods. I am central to all princes. After I have conferred my power on the warrior, when he goes to war, he knows no fear. He knows no faltering. I foster neighborliness and friendliness. I sort out quarrels started between neighbors. In sheep shacks and milking pens scattered on the high plain, what can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. So, sheep replies and points out that the yarns of Utu are the splendor of kingship. The manual labor of herders and weavers is the economic basis for institutional authority. Sheep's tools are... Cow tools! Yes, yes. (laughs) 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 Priests, being holy and eternal, are sheep's tools. And uh, green's tools are farm equipment, being mundane and breakable. When she mentions oil, she's going to be talking about lanolin, which is extracted from shorn wool, and talking about sheepskin as the source of leather to produce water skin and sandals. Sheep answered grain. My sister, whatever are you saying? All the yarns of Utu, the splendor of kingship, belong to me. Sweet oil, the fragrance of the gods. Pressed oil, aromatic oil, cedar oil for offerings are mine. Sustenance of the workers in the field is mine. The water skin of cool water and the sandals are mine. In the gown, my cloth of white wool, the king rejoices on his throne. My body glistens on the flesh of the great gods. After the purification priests, the incantation priests, and the bathed priests have dressed themselves in me for my holy lustration, I walk with them to my holy meal. But your harrow, plowshare, binding, and strap are tools that can be utterly destroyed. What can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. We're going to hear Grain's response. The first this episode is going to be about textiles. Sheep were first domesticated for meat, after which they would have been used for leather, milk, and other products. The first wool sheep appeared during the Ubayid in the 4000s or so, you see. We're going to see the growth of the wool industry during the Uruk period in the 3000 BC. We have archaic cuneiform texts that give us a picture of wool processing during the late Uruk period. We're going to talk about flax, which, being domesticated during the Neolithic, is older than wool. And then our thrilling conclusion is going to be the end of the debate between sheep and grain. Two will enter, one will leave. (laughs) (laughs) So, as I said, eventually, (laughs) sheep were first domesticated for meat. Uh, Relatively soon after, around 7000 BC, it would have been used for dairy because... Once people invented pottery, they were able to process dairy and take some of the lactose out of it. Wait, tell me a little bit more about this. Yeah, so how are they doing that? if you cook milk in a pot, it breaks down with sugars. Yeah. Like curds and whey. Mm-hmm. One of them has much less lactose than the other one. Mm-hmm. Really? At the beginning of livestock domestication, almost nobody would have been lactose tolerant. Mm-hmm. So until people develop that genetically, they're going to have to come up with a manual way to make the milk out of it. Mm-hmm. I see. And what is that? Uh, you can heat it up or... I guess so. If you add acid to it, it Separate it, yeah, into curds and whey. So what I understand from my own connection, like a personal connection from Mm -hmm. pottery to milk, is repairing a crack in some pottery Uh with milk by inserting milk into a crack in pottery, Mm -hmm. letting it solidify in there using one of the proteins, I believe it's called casein. Mm -hmm. And when you remove it and wash it out, the crack is then sealed. Oh man, this is a win-win for pottery and milk processing. Also, I just looked it up. Whey is mostly water, lactose, and whey proteins. So the curds have less lactose in them. Nice. I was just going to say, so making things like cheese and yes. such is a way to yeah, process milk. Is a way? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, is a way to 
processed milk to get rid of some of the lactose. And also, I guess, I, I think that preserves it, or, or at least can you can preserve cheese more easily than milk itself. I think we're talking milk about like harder cheeses though, right? Yeah, maybe. Because what I'm thinking of right now is my lactose intolerant friend says that hard cheeses are not as much of a problem as soft cheeses. Yeah, mm-hmm. Parmesan's. Mm-hmm. yeah it's not bad. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Love to mm-hmm. some Parmesan. Did they invent Parmesan? I'd mm-hmm. be disappointed if they didn't. <laughs> so yeah, once you have animals that are producing dairy, that is an incentive to keep them alive for longer. So, you know, if you're only eating them for meat, you kill them as soon as they reach adult size. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to keep feeding them. Mm-hmm. But when they're producing dairy, and later on when they make wool, you want to keep them until they die. Mm-hmm. So what does that change about, like, I don't know, culturally? Or, like, what's the impact of that? On, well, like, now whatever. you can have an arbitrarily large herd because, you know, whatever you don't eat, you can export. Mm. So now you can basically export commodities instead of just using them for sustenance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially wool, which mm-hmm. has uh, basically a shelf life. You know, you can ship it, and it's light. It's high value for the amount of mass involved. So what you're saying is that this switch from sheep for dairy and wool instead of for meat may have created trade, not currency, but trade. Yeah. And we're talking about commerce now. Right. That's cool. Yeah. Cool. And then, yeah, archaeologically, we know when people stop culling animals because we have more old animals. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. then do it. Dog hunts. That dog hunt. <laughs> so around 5,000 BCE, at Tepe Sarab in western Iran, we have a image of a livestock creature with Y-shaped incisions on it, which might be a depiction of wool. It might also be a goat. Is this part of why we think of goats and sheep as very similar objects? Well, I mean, time? it just looks like it could be a goat or a sheep. I see. Oh, I see what what do you mean, mean by incisions? Like, what's like, the... Oh, sorry. Into the surface of the sculpture. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Like, okay. Mm, so in case they don't have, like, some kind of carving tool to make little swirlies, swirlies. the way that I would draw wool right. <laughs> if, I was, if I had the option. Yeah, it might be a goat because yeah. those sound like kind of straight hairs. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Or sheep did not have curly hair back then. Okay, yeah. Because, mm. yeah, because sheep, the, the kinkiness of, of, of wool, I guess, yeah, that, that does vary by breed and such ah. things like that. And so, yeah, and especially, once again, old-timey sheep, who freaking knows, yeah. Yeah, hair doesn't last that long, right? Generally, yeah. yeah, unless it's in a bog. But I don't think they had a lot of bogs in Sumer. Yeah, we, we are lucky enough to have a couple individual, like, fibers, a couple strings, but very... Gosh, wow. Usually, like, in a grave. I guess you could say we're grasping for threats, eh? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, so around the same time in the Alluvium, around 5,000 BC, you see that sheep are already starting to become a major part of the political economy. I bet. Looking at their skeletons, there appear to be five different types of sheep. So this could indicate specialized breeding, or it could indicate different origins, that they're importing sheep from different mm-hmm. regions. How many different regions are we talking about here? Well, I mean, they're in southern Mesopotamia. You can go north to, like, northern Iraq and Turkey. You north, go... south, east, west? Yeah, well, I mean, not so much west, just because of the desert there. But, I mean, oh, okay. every, every other direction, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they have sheep in the... Arabian Peninsula, as we've talked about in previous episodes. So during the Ubayid period, spindle whorls and other textile tools become common. Hell yeah. So this indicates small-scale household production. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. I love this idea because our mother has three spinning wheels, two of which are operational in her household. Mm-hmm. And a drop spindle? Yes. It'd be really nice to have here, you know? Spindle yeah, wheel? I can talk about spindles for like a silly amount of time. That's Go for it. Yeah. Yeah, we also see looms, which are probably in houses. This How big are these looms? Smaller than most looms later on. Mm-hmm. Were children operating any of these devices? We don't know. Okay, that's all I need. We know women were in some capacity, especially mm-hmm. in like the big institutions. Mm-hmm. It's likely that children were, because basically as soon as kids turned like six or so, slave kids, mm-hmm. they were put to work. Mm-hmm. So we don't know exactly what kind of work that was, but it probably would have been the, the lighter work involved in weaving. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Yeah, it seems almost certain to me that kids would have been put to doing these fibery tasks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very, like around 3000 BC, we have indications. Like, we have very detailed records of all the slave kids in the temples. So, at the site of Kosak Shamali, 
This is in northern Syria, on the east bank of the upper Euphrates. During the Ubaid period, we have lots of small spindles for spinning wool. We also have stone tabular scrapers. These are cutting tools. They become more common during the Uruk than in the Ubaid, and they're probably used for plucking instead of shearing. Did their moms yell at them for using the fabric tabular scrapers for cutting paper <laughs> instead of for cutting fibers? Probably for like cutting like meat or something. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> you put my tabular scraper back on the shelf. Do they have a little Danish cookie tin filled with tabular scrapers? Of course, they only discovered tin yet, so they were using arsenic. <laughs> Jeez. Where are those cookie tins? Let's talk about flax, baby. Mm. Don't just be some flax. Yeah. Nice. I love linen. Oh my god. I love that it's ancient. Mm -hmm. I love that it keeps you cool when wet. That is true of all plant fibers, as so I understand wool. it. Wool keeps, wool you, keeps warm you warm when wet. wet. Yeah. As far as I, I know, animal fibers will probably keep you warm when wet. Silk, I'm not super sure about that, because mm. I don't classify that as animal or plant. It's protein-based. It is an animal fiber. I think it is it, an animal fiber? Yeah. Keeps you warm when wet? I don't I'm know. told it's very cooling to wear. Not that I wear a lot of silk. I feel like silk is a very warm fiber, but I don't know that it's necessarily. I agree that I think I think of silk as a warm fiber. What I like about flax and linen is that I'm thinking about it. The way that they produced it then is not the same way that they produced it now, is it? Mm -hmm. The way that they like manufacture it into threads that you can then weave. I know that it is hard to spin flax. Because linen. the staple is shorter? Yes, it's a short staple and you usually need a supported spindle. I see. Yes. Interesting. So instead of one that you are like dropping from a height, mm -hmm. um, which is what you can do with wool, it would have like a little kind of dish that you spin it in like a top and mm. you work kind of up from that. Oh, I see what you mean. Mm -hmm. So because like it has a shorter staple, you literally have to weave it from a shorter length or spin it from a shorter length. Spin it yes. From a shorter yeah. Length. Yeah, sorry. yeah. Like you can't, you can't like draw it out like your arm's mm -hmm. length like you can with wool. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. I don't know very much about like staple lengths personally. I did do a little bit of reading about it though. About like different fibers for different clothes and how like polyester is not a sin. I mean, it's a little sinful, but it's not, it not going to send you to hell. I guess that's um, probably true of lots of things, <laughs> depending on your religious beliefs. <laughs> Are your religious beliefs personally that polyester will send you to hell? No. Okay, mine neither. I think it's fine. Well, it's very accessible. I didn't say that. <laughs> it seems like a very useful fiber. Is all I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Can you eat it? Flex. Yeah. Flex seeds. Yeah. Nice. Oh yeah. Flex oil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've never tried flax oil. Should I? Is it edible? Mm -hmm. You're saying it's edible? Yeah, you can buy it in the refrigerated section at like your local hippie grocery store. Ours, it's in like the nutrition aisle. It's like in the refrigerated section of the vitamins aisle. Yeah, it's weird. It's like Is people it take it as a supplement. People oh. are taking it as a supplement. I don't know what for. So flax is labor intensive to produce. We'll talk about that more in a bit. The farm work is physically taxing. Flax, the plant, requires a lot of water. Mm. And it's also much harder to process than wool. Over time, the trend is from individuals and small family units doing lots of different types of farm labor to huge industrial fields for producing monoculture crops, pretty much. Mm. So over time, we see the growth of large-scale repetitive labor. Again, the invention of manual labor. Real bad for the body. Yep. So because it's so labor-intensive over time, we're going to see that linen is reserved for kings and priests and ritual uses. So this just makes me feel better about wearing linen. Huh. It's a little expensive. It's so worth it. Yeah, you don't think that makes you kind of bougie? <laughs> I do think it makes you kind of bougie. <laughs> oh, okay. And I'm living for it. I see. Yeah. So the shift from flax to wool would have accompanied a shift in labor and resource use. Like I said, flax needs a lot of water, so it requires prime agricultural land, which could also be used for growing food. Whereas sheep can graze on large areas of poorer soil, where you could not grow grain, and they can also walk to grass and water. Can't so walk on it. Well, <laughs> probably float on. 
Everyone just that's true. Let's all just take a moment to imagine these little sheep floating placidly <laughs> down the river to the next <laughs> grazing field. You know, I love sheep because they just look so confused. I don't know. Like they're just like they never know what's going on around them, and they're just going with it. You know, it's like like someone's like I'm herding you into the water, and they're like all right, and they just like float along. They're like I hope this works out, but I don't know. So sheep can walk two grass and one, which means that you don't have to dig irrigation ditches mm. or transport feed over a long distance. I am going to say that I think irrigation was a good idea. Yeah. I'm not just saying this in defense of my grain lady. Mm -hmm. I'm also saying this in defense of like plumbing and sewers. Okay. Irrigation. Mm -hmm. Also flax. Yeah. Also flax. But I'm really but hearing also, how sheep was kind of the way. We can disagree. Different things. I'm more of a summer than a winter. So I'm going to enjoy clothes that keep me cool more than clothes that keep me warm, I think. Not to say I don't enjoy clothes that keep me warm, but like I'd rather live in like a place that's warm mm. and wear linen. Oh, I see. Than live in a place that's cold and wear wool. I believe wool, okay, I've been trying to figure this out. I've heard that wool can keep you cool, but I don't understand why. So I, I really want to learn more about this. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. So when you're no longer using your good farmland for flax, that frees up farmland for grain, which means you can feed more workers. Uh, we've talked about grain rations. We've talked about how workers are important to have because yep. otherwise not, nothing gets done. True. So starting in the work period, we see that wool production is going to become a major element in the Mesopotamian economy. We know this from texts, we know this from art, and we also see it, as I mentioned, in the age profile of sheep skeletons, because when you're keeping them alive for longer, you have more adult sheep. So this is more or less infinitely scalable. So there are lots of grasslands away from rivers. You can just walk the sheep to the river. Right. Well, we can walk sheep across the grassland, away from the river. Why do you want to do the that? To float because down. You know, because you can't farm far away from water. Mm -hmm. You can graze sheep far away from water and just walk them back to the water to drink. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one person and a couple dogs can herd a huge amount of sheep. And if you have a state apparatus, essentially, a institution keeping track of large numbers of shepherds with large numbers of sheep, you can basically have infinite sheep under your control. Have we domesticated dogs at this point? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's awesome. Can dogs I, were first. What kind of dogs, what kind of good little puppers were we seeing herding these sheep? Like, are there are there breeds that we can... Mostly Salukis. Yes. Let me look wow. this up. We also have the kind of like... Oh my goodness gracious. Terrier, setter type looking dog. Okay. Yes. He's a cool flipping dog. Mm. Look at this dog. Yeah, they're so very pretty. They're very pretty. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Beautiful dogs. Would recommend to the listener, mm. look up this dog. <laughs> so the combination of less labor required to produce wool, plus more total labor available to produce wool, means that now you have a huge amount of wool. Woo! So to quote a 2017 article by Susan Pollock, quote, Judging by depictions of spinning and weaving on cylinder seals, as well as mentions in early written texts, cloth production formed a major part of the political as well as the domestic economy, growing into what can quite reasonably be called an industry. So both wool and thread have a long shelf life. I agree. On the shift from domestic to industrial production, there's another quote from Pollock, quote, in addition to repetitiveness, the spinning of thread and weaving of cloth share with other uber spheres of activity the potential for almost limitless continuity. Thread can be prepared, spun and dyed, and stored indefinitely for later use, allowing productive tasks to be cut up into small segments. Talk about those segments in a bit. So we have no definite evidence of textile manufacture for export yet. And most of that is because all of the exported textiles would have decayed by the time we sell them. Wait, okay, so when you say yet, you mean by at, this point at, in history? At this point in history, yeah. Or like by this point in the modern age, like we haven't found them. Or I mean, it could well, be both. But both, like, technically. Yeah. Okay, but so you're at saying... this point in history, we don't have evidence for textile exports. Okay, okay. But... But we wouldn't. Right. Because, yeah, basically the texts we have only indicate what enters and leaves the temple, not where it goes at this point. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't have archaeological remains of wool mm -hmm. elsewhere because it decayed. Right. Yeah, so during the 2000s BC and onwards, we will see a state-controlled export industry. During the Uruk period, we see a cylinder seal impression from Susa. 
depicting a horizontal loom and women with pigtails working it. I will say, I disagree that pigtails are the most efficient way to hold your hair back. Yeah, okay. what's the significance of the woman with pigtails? Is there any, or is it just... Well, I mean, that's how we identify them as women. Not, not a great marker, but... Mm-hmm. But, I mean, yeah, that, that combined with the fact that later on, uh, you know, women mm-hmm. were the ones doing the vast majority of textile manual labor. Mm-hmm. I'm not be using my tabulous scrapers for my sewing to cut your hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I got to type back. Put them in the cute little pigtails, yeah. So we have archaic texts on animal husbandry from Udu that seem to record state manners flocks of sheep. And later on, historical times, we will see individual texts tallying up tens of thousands of sheep. So to quote a 2014 article from Peter Sharba. Weaving is, quote, one of the crafts that possesses the lowest potential for specialization, end quote. So in other words, it's a problem that you can solve with large amounts of captive labor. And there's a pretty good chance that any people you capture are going to already know how to weave. Mm. So the growth of basically industrial weaving is easy to use as an indicator of social change because a larger, more complex economy will have more people doing manual labor. Mm-hmm. So the records left to us from the Uruk period record lots of slaves, most of whom were women. Not into that. Yeah. The state had a role in storage and redistribution of raw materials and finished products. So in other words, Uruk era Unuk had all the ingredients for textile workhouses, and we are not sure exactly how similar the process was to the later Sumerian textile process. Who's in charge right now? Do we have a king? It's, it's complicated. The temple is in charge. This reminds me a lot of what Jenny Slate had to say about the creation of sexism. Yeah. She said, I'm already made a code. The code was pretty sexist. I'm surprised. <laughs> And she was like, yeah, these guys, they were like, we want more. So they made people make them more. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. Yeah, man, reproductive labor. I hate it. Dude, like, get your mind woke, you know? Like, <laughs> I guess. Feminist conscious race. Consciousness race. We've been at it for years. Raise it. <laughs> God damn. So at Arsalan Pepe in southeastern Anatolia, in the mid-3000s BC, we see spindle whorls in houses, not public buildings. What's a whorl? Spindle whorl. It's, it's like the a... weight at the bottom of the spindle, or at the top of the spindle. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. At the top? Uh, there are top world spindles and bottom world spindles and even middle world spindles. I don't know where you put the yarn on a middle world spindle. Okay. So in a drop spindle, the whorl is the bottom world. The whorl is the weight. It may be at the bottom or the top. The whorl is one piece. Yes. Okay. Cool. But, but, oh yeah, there's only one whorl. Right, but right. you can orient the spindle so that most of the stick is protruding up from mm. the whorl. The whorl's at the bottom. Or you can have the whorl at the top and you wind the yarn under the whorl. Mm. Both work. Hey, you say so. I really think the bottom one looks better. Just for, like, balance reasons. But I guess if you know what you're doing. They both work equally well. I don't know what the, um... Can you just take a bottom roll spindle and just spin it upside down? If you put a hook on the other side, yeah. Okay. You do have to have, like, some kind of notch or something to... That makes sense. Or hook for the yarn to catch on. But, but yeah, other than that, you're fine. Remind me. A drop spindle. You mm-hmm. can make a really basic one with just, like, some things from Home Depot and an old CD, right? You could use a pencil and an old CD. You could use a pencil and an old CD. Yeah. You need a hook, though. You need, like, a C-hook. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fine, you do want a hook. Yeah, okay. Fact, these things are very easy to make right now. Mm-hmm. How much harder do you think this would have been to make if you were just a poor person living in Oldie times? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, what were the worlds made of? Were they Clay. made of stone? Clay. Clay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think the hard parts would be getting it to be a nice, balanced, like, round thing. Do they have, like, pottery wheels at this time? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that might not be too bad. Yeah. Because you could get a nice, fairly perfect circular thing that hopefully has a fairly uniform density so that it's nice and balanced. But honestly, it doesn't even, it's like, it's annoying to work with an unbalanced spindle, but it's not the end of the world. Like, you can totally do it. Hmm. Really old spindles that we find that are, like, you know, rocks or whatever, and, like, not even a straight stick. You know, it's like they were really putting the effort in in that in those times. Um, okay, so you could just get a rock and a stick and mm-hmm. well, okay, you gotta, time. You gotta put a hole in the rock, and that's okay. Be rough. You're right. That's yeah. a little difficult. I wonder what they used to like. Oh, I guess you could just friction fit a slightly too big stick. Well, or a slightly kind of conical stick, which would be easy to you know whittle yourself yeah. into the appropriate shape. 
so you would make your clay whorl with a hole in it and then yeah and then you could friction fit your stick into it and make some kind of hook um you could even and oh and the hook doesn't have to be like you could make it kind of like a crochet hook like a wooden crochet I see, hook I see. and you can do that just by doing a little notch as yeah a like you could carve that yeah it so it's not like you even need like metal oh you could probably make a little diy spindle out of a crochet hook if you wanted now that i think about it for all your like kids at home the, you want to go to the craft store make a quick little spindle see what this is like but yeah i think that that would be pretty easy to do for old tiny yeah. people okay sweet. i'm sorry that those are the kinds of that that's the kind of language <laughs> that i use yeah, i don't know what these time periods are yeah. but it's all old time well, I mean, technically the over period overlaps, mm. yes. Wait, when you say overlaps with the Bronze Age, what does it also overlap with? Basically, the Uruk period is like 3800 to 3100 BC-ish, mm -hmm. and we could say we're in the Bronze Age after 3500 BC or so. And what are we in before that? The Catholicity. What's that? The Copper or something. Okay. I don't know what Tolkien would have called it, but I would call them Uruk High. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is where that comes from. Is it really? Yeah, no, he's, that's he's right. familiar with ancient Eastern history. Gosh. He <laughs> <laughs> can't defend himself. Yeah, but I think it's, it's funny because he swears, like, you know, people ask him, like, hey, this whole ring that turns you invisible that is also a metaphor for power. Tell us about the bit in Plato's Republic where Gyges finds a ring that turns him invisible that is also a metaphor for power. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know that. <laughs> Let's change the subject. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so a wide range of world size at Arslan Tepe indicates they're probably working with different types of thread or maybe different fibers. What do you think of that, Sam? Yeah, so um, a heavier spindle it's going to be harder to spin a lot of fine yarn on that because it'll break it before yeah. you can get it spun. So you want a lighter spindle or lighter whorl, really, if you're trying to make fine thread. But if you want kind of thicker stuff, oh, it would also be harder to spin like flax, for instance, on a heavier spindle. That makes sense because yeah. it's a short stable. Yeah. How many ply are we talking about here? Because like fine yarn makes it stronger, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, probably at least two, I would guess, but like... But you also don't have to ply yarn. Yeah, but they probably would, I think. Because so. they're not wasting their time on stuff that's going to fall apart, you know? That's true. The matter of wasting time was something that you mentioned Yeah, I guess. Ago. Yeah, so from that book, Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years, yes. is that what it's called? Okay. Nailed it. <laughs> she, yeah, she talked about the whole, like, wasting time or, like, kind of time as... I don't know, like how, how are we, yeah, how are we thinking of it? And it's like, not like an infinite resource, but it wasn't when you were super like, you were using, you weren't wasting. You weren't worried about it. Yeah. Like as an individual, I guess. Like, and so, you know, it's like, yes, everything took a lot of time and you knew that everything was going to take a lot of time. And so you were putting the time in and it's like, that's fine. But weren't there people who were just like kind of pissed about having to like hand sew things? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, there's got to be a better way, but I don't know. I can't conceive of it. <laughs> this just sucks. I want the gods to intervene and <laughs> magically make my tunic. Um, but yeah, I would say that, yeah, probably people were not wanting to work with singles, which is unplied uh, yarn because it is a lot more breakable. It's not as strong. But it would be it's... fine for clothes. Right? I wouldn't, I, I really feel like... Not for weaving them? No, because you'd have to put it under a lot of tension That's for weaving. True. And And I think it's like, you want to make strong cloth, you would want at least two, if not three, ply yarn. But that's, I mean, this is all guesswork. I'm just kind of yeah. assuming based on what I know about. I, I've watched a little bit of an indigenous woman, I think, Pueblo? I'm totally guessing here, but um, on YouTube, who talks about indigenous fiber practices in the like American Southwest. Well, okay, this was a way of making cord that did not involve a spindle. It was just all done. When I say hand spinning, I mean with your hands. But they were plying it as they went, which was, I don't know, interesting and it seemed to be a good way to... The inefficient way to get this done. Yeah. And it seemed like, you know, it was a good enough idea to them to make plied yarn. If they think it's worth their time, then who might say otherwise? Yeah. I think it's worth it to ply it. It's I also, agree. It I also sets better. the twist. Yeah. Moving on to the late Uruk period at Arslan Tepe. Still, most worlds and moonweights are inside houses. We also see clay imprints of a plain tappy weave. The thread count, so about 8 to 12 threads per centimeter, corresponds with the size of loom weights. 
inches. You could 12 per centimeter. My goodness, they're doing well. Yeah. That's pretty thin. Over time, smaller worlds will allow them to leave with finer threads. That coincides with the same you're saying, yeah? Yeah. So back to Cossack Shamali in northern Syria. We see more focus on secondary products. Sheep would have produced dairy, wool, lanolin, meat, and leather. So in other words, you're going to want to wring as many commodities as possible out of the sheep, both perishable and non-perishable. So we see sheep becoming basically a unit of capital. Because once you have an arbitrarily large flock, you have a economically significant amount of wool. An uncountable number of sheep. Yeah. So at Cossack Shamali, we see a clay impression of a rope used to seal a container. The direction that the fibers themselves spin, two of them are Z-shaped, and one of them is S-shaped. It's, it's one three-ply string with two Z-shaped fibers and one S-shaped fiber. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. That is, that seems very weird. That kind of coincides with what I know about some fiber spinning, that sometimes you use Z-shaped and sometimes you use S-shaped, but they're four different things. Hmm. Well, I kind of want to read more about that, because oh, the problem is I can never remember how to even identify. Like, I'm like, this looks like a Z or an S. I really, yeah. it's it's up to interpretation. But it's very interesting to me that they would fly two Z-shaped flies with an S-spun fly, because it's like, usually you spin the fiber in one direction, and then you ply it in the other direction. That's just what, I mean, that's what naturally happens. That's kind of what the twist wants to do. So I wonder why they were flying it with a different... And I wonder what direction they plied it in, I guess. Was it a Z-shaped fly or an S-shaped fly? Was it on accident? I doubt it. I think that you would... You would be, you I don't know, though. I don't know. You know what? Like... Sometimes <laughs> it's like you're doing something and then you just start doing it completely wrong and you realize you've spun like this whole chunk of yarn and you're like, well, what am I going to do? Undo it? No. I did a hat and I twist my stitches like back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. What is interesting, I mean, this is a bit of a digression, but I think it's cool, is that, I guess, hand sewing thread... Used to be spun in one way. And is this then, information from Bernadette Banner? Yes, this is something okay. I learned from Bernadette Banner. And she talked about how when sewing machines became more popular, they started producing the thread that was spun the opposite way from the kind of traditional hand sewing thread because it seemed to work better with the machines. And she didn't talk about this specifically. Like it sounded like, you know, the thread that was spun the old way would just break in the machines. But it's actually the stronger thread, isn't it? I don't see why it would be stronger one way or the other. But okay. I wonder if it's because of the right hand rule. I wonder if it's because our mechanical stuff is all righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, if that is somehow playing a role. But anyway, I don't know. So I kind of wonder if there's some kind of... I this is such mean. a curiosity, and, and I want to know more. That mm. seems so weird. I see what you mean. Does this have anything to do with how, like... I remember analyzing this with you one day, that I sew from right to left. Mm -hmm. It's just a more comfortable way to do it. Mm -hmm. Just because I'm right-handed. Mm -hmm. Does it have anything to do with sewing in the other direction? Because I noticed that hand sewing, I sew backwards in the way that I machine sew. Yeah, I wonder... Oh, hmm. I wonder... So I wonder if the traditional hand sewing thread direction of twist, if that is less likely to result in like your thread getting you know twisted and tangled or at least more slowly because it happens inevitably as any hand yeah. sewer will tell you but i wonder if it results in less twisting and tangling from hand sewing from right to left for a right-handed person uh then thread spun the opposite way i feel like this is an interesting thing but i feel like it is probably totally a digression yeah, yeah super related to yeah it's just a common thread if you will is my curiosities about the directions in which we spin and ply things and this just seems so funky i wonder why they did this and i wonder yeah. what direction they applied these two different directions of fiber applied together indicates that wool was more common at this point. So most natural fibers twist in only one direction. Flax is an S-shaped twist, so it twists to the left. Cotton and hemp are both Z-shaped, so they twist to the right. But wool can twist either way. And is that from how they grow? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. So 90% of people are right-handed. So sure. when you're drop spinning, you hold the massive fiber in your right hand, you rotate the spindle with your left, which makes it most likely to spin in this direction. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see how that's a Z. 
<laughs> yeah, I traced it through the air. Yeah. It made much more sense that way. Yeah. Okay. So the process of turning a fiber into a finished product involves a lot of steps. You need to get the fibers, you need to prepare them, and then spin them, and then weave them. Oh, don't we know it? So wild sheep have two types of hair. They have fine wool, and the fibers of the fine wool have microscopic scales that, when you spin them together, create friction. The cuticle, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Sheep also grow long, coarse hairs, and they shed both in the spring. The main difference between wild and domestic sheep is that wild sheep shed their coat when it gets hot. Hmm. Makes sense to me. Domesticating them, you have to make them not do that. Hmm. Same. So it's unclear exactly what the timeline is with regard to you know, making wool of your sheep. These skeletons of sheep are not helpful, obviously. We Wait, pro- I have a question about this. Hmm. Sheep skeletons are not helpful? Is this not helpful to archaeologists or is this not helpful to people trying to produce things with sheep? Not helpful to archaeologists trying to figure out when sheep started growing wool. Okay, because I was going to say, because I bet like marrow is pretty good. Exactly. For what? Eating. Oh. Every part of the sheep is useful. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, marrow is good for the sheep growing wool. Like, they would probably need their whole body to grow the wool. <laughs> yeah, every part of the sheep. The sheep is like, I use yeah. every part of the animal. Myself. No, thinking yeah. about eating it, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, he's saying that the skeletal record is not yes. helpful for historians okay. in understanding this. I meant impartially because we can't distinguish him from goat bones. Yes. Well, Surely, yeah. The kind of domestic sheep we envision today that continuously grow a big woolly coat, that probably wasn't the case until the late Bronze Age or later. So after 1500 BC. Mm-hmm. Can you guys remember that picture of like that sheep that had been lost for like 10 yes, years? Yes, And it was like miserably yeah. covered yeah, in Yeah, that poor guy, yeah. That poor little guy. Yeah. And then, I mean, they, then the they shaved him and they were like, yeah. he's okay now. Yeah. Probably the best shearing he's ever gotten in his life. <laughs> so wool fibers are very different from each other. They vary between breeds and by the age and sex of the sheep and where on the body it comes from. So thighs produce longer and coarser wool than the sides and the shoulders do. And some advantages that wool has over linen, it's warmer, it's softer, it's more water-repellent, and it's easier to dye. I'm going to make an argument against that it is softer. If you use linen for long enough, it gets soft. But I feel like that's kind of the same way that, like, you know, you have, like, a crisp piece of paper, Mm -hmm. crumple it up a couple of times, Mm -hmm. it's softer. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, so I think wool is softer from the get-go. Oh, Um, I see, yeah. And I think it stays softer, even when you spin it pretty tightly, like, because mm. people were not making softy flopsy yarn, you know, they were making stuff to last. I guess so, yeah. If you've seen, I don't know, um, have you seen uh, the video by Morgan Donner about, it's like this braid thing on the hem of this... I haven't seen it, but it's okay. very interesting. Okay, so what she does is, it's it's this way of hemming a, like, a wool gown. That's that was, woven, right? Uh, yeah. And it involves creating this braid around the hem, and I can't remember how she does it, but what I thought was interesting about it was, I was like, how is this better than a folded hem? But you don't have to weave as wide of a piece of cloth, right? Because you don't have to fold anything. Mm-hmm. So you can just use, like, raw yarn. You get it earlier in the process than fabric. And it was creating, like, three layers thick of hem. And this was also a replaceable kind of hem. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that people were concerned about, was, like, having a hem that was, like, three layers thick that you could also replace. So that's the kind of, like, lasting power we want on clothes in oldie times when we had to make everything through this arduous process. You didn't have to think about the hem allowance. Yes. (laughs) Quickly. That'd be nice to not think about Yeah, because you don't have to weave as wide of a piece of fabric for the hem allowance um, or as long, whatever. But yeah, so I think that probably people were spinning linen and it was like that horrible wiry kind of, it wasn't your nice, comfy, pre-washed, pre-softened handkerchief linen. Love that stuff. Yeah. So I think that wool retains its softness and and also some fuzziness. I have a question about this, which is easier to dye? Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. Because as I understand it, at least in modern, like you go out to the store and get a bottle of dye. Mm -hmm. Plant materials are easier to dye than protein materials. But maybe it's a matter of accessibility of what materials you use to dye them. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the kinds of fabric dye that you go out and buy, like RIT or whatever. Okay, here's going to be my like naive little understanding is it's like made of the same stuff that like fountain pen ink is made of. Interesting. Dyes, right? And fountain pen ink is designed to bond to cellulose. So these are dyes that are designed to bond to cellulose. I see. But I think that, I don't know, for some reason, maybe whatever dyes they had access to were, I don't know, not necessarily uh, optimized okay. for cellulose purposes. And water repellent because of lanolin. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's interesting about um, easier to dye. So moving on to the shearing process. The oldest method of removing fibers from sheep is probably plucking them by hand. That does not sound fun for the sheep. So this leads to finer strands and less kemp. What's kemp? That's the, the coarse hair. Oh, okay. And you can pluck a sheep about one time a year. Mm -hmm. So this might have been the origin of eventually breeding them to not show mm -hmm. So if you comb them more often, you end up with more wool. And, you know, it also produces finer wool. The, the wool grows back as fine. Oh, so this is combing as part of the process, like as part of the caretaking of a sheep that you're going to pluck. Right, right. I see. And by the way, I think that by plucking, they don't mean like pulling out their hairs. It means like separating the hair that they're shedding. Oh, I from, see. I see. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. Like brushing your cat. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. The first tool they would have used would be a knife. Oh, wait. The first tool used for fiber remover as opposed to plucking by hand? Yes. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> would be a knife. Later on, they would use shears. You could shear a sheep two times a year. In terms of preparation, you can spin the fibers immediately. Usually, you should comb them or tease them by hand, and this separates the long hair from the wool. And then you can castrate the male sheep, because castrated males produce more and better wool. Hmm, interesting. So during the late work, the sign for a wool storeroom is the same shape as a desert kite. Like the bird? It works kind of like a funnel out in the desert made of rocks, and you chase wild game into it. So they try to run away from you, but they run towards the narrow end of the funnel, so they're trapped in the... Oh, and that's what the kite is. Right. Okay. It's, yeah. it's not a So it's, it's a not trap. A, it's a trap, yeah. It's not a bird. It's a trap for hunting wild game. I see. Okay. And they might have used the same principle to drive animals into a secluded area where they don't want to be. Where the animals don't want to be? Right. They probably don't enjoy the shearing process. Mm. They, you know, if, they could, if they could avoid it, they could. So you drive your herd in a general direction, and they don't know how fellows work. Mm -hmm. Dumbasses. <laughs> Aww. Cute dumbasses. Ooh. So sheep have to be sheared in late spring and or summer. So if you're moving the sheep around throughout the year, you know, to different pastures and so on, you have to keep this in mind so that wherever they are during the year, in the late spring, they end up at the shearing facility. Mm -hmm. So from there, wool is sometimes held at a secondary storehouse, but eventually it's going to make its way to a workshop. And especially during the Uruk, different production stages are done at different places. Okay, so when you say different stages in production are done at different places, you're talking about either division of labor or industrialization. Both. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, there's a different building where they shear, and one where they store it, and one where they spin it. Pretty wise. Yeah. So, speaking of spinning, in ancient times, in or near your house, after you combed or carded the sheep, you would put the wool in a basket, you would stretch it into ribbons by hand. Is that a hink? No. no. What is that called, though? I don't remember. You roll out these ribbons on a short dye staff, which holds the raw material and make sure the prepared fibers don't mix up again. And then you make yarn. I mean, do you want to describe a spindle whorl? Um, sure. A spindle whorl is a weight. It should be round. And it is what allows the spindle to have momentum? Inertia? Oh, mm -hmm. God. I teach this yeah, stuff. but so, so that it keeps spinning once you've spun it, like a top. After you make the yarn, you want to ply it, which is difficult because your arms are already full. What does that mean? What do you mean? It was difficult because your arms are holding a dice staff in one hand and a whorl in the other. Okay, so they are applying this... As they make it. Ooh, okay, interesting. Yeah. So at Mari in northeastern Syria, around about 2000 BC, 
we see images of two women working together so that it's an unbroken chain from the ribbon of wool to plied thread. They are each spinning on their own spindle? I think one person is spinning with a, the dice staff and spindle and the other person is taking the spun wool and plying it into thread. I feel like that'd be easy if you had three people, honestly. Yeah, I'm just having a hard time. It's like, how are you getting a continuous strand this way? Mm. Okay. What right. this reminds me of, mm. just like like a childhood thing, mm -hmm. is standing there with your arms like this, like with your arms forked, mm -hmm. so with yarn mm -hmm. going around your arms while your mother turns it into a ball of yarn. Mm -hmm. That's some two women work if I ever saw mm -hmm. it. Amen. So, modern experience using Bronze Age Greek spindles demonstrated that with a four gram whorl, you can spend 35 meters of thread an hour. Mm -hmm. And with an 18 gram whorl, you can spend 50 meters of thread an hour. So I imagine that though it's 50 meters, it is much more wool that you're... Because as you mentioned, a heavier spindle mm -hmm. makes thicker yarn. Makes thicker yarn, you can spin it faster, but you're using a lot more of your wool. Well, you can spin it for longer. And that's, I think that that's... Yeah, I guess it'll spin faster and it'll stay spinning longer. So you don't have to restart it as often. What I'm imagining is the mechanical... It's like a mechanical pencil with a thicker... Piece of lead? With a thicker piece of lead, yeah. I think you're going to go through that. Or you're going to go through one of them faster mm -hmm. than a piece of lead. Yeah, I mean, I, okay. It's like, if you're good, you can spin fine yarn on a heavier spindle. Which is good because the spindle gets heavier as you wrap more yarn around it. That is true. Or I wonder um, how different the yarns that they produced are. Mm -hmm. So spinning is the most common stage of the textile process, represented on cylinder seals, which probably indicates that it was the most economically important. In... What's a cylinder seal? So it's basically, if you imagine like a paint roller, mm -hmm. like with a cylinder that rolls around an axis that you can Wait, paint on a surface. I think it's more like a fancy rolling pin yes. that you use to yeah, make um, better, yeah. like a fancy imprinted cookie thing. Yes. Okay. It's exactly like that. How is it represented on cylinder seals? So you carve the seam on the outside of the cylinder, and then you press it into clay, you roll it over clay, and it creates a continuous image that you carved into the cylinder seal. What is the purpose of this? So essentially, it's a stamp that indicates who you are. It's like signing your name on stuff. And mm. like, a, like a seal. Yeah. And like a wax you, seal. you use it to indicate that you approved of the treatment or that you... And I bet it's hard to fake, because no one's going to get like your right. exact... Right. Right. right, The exact length that you would yeah. do. And they're all unique. And they're all unique. Each, oh. each seal is unique. I wonder if spinning was the most common stage of the process represented on cylinder seals, in part because it was the coolest looking. Mm, like, nice. I mean, it's dynamic. There's movement. I don't know. I think it's fun. I think mm. it's sexy. <laughs> I think that people would want to be depicting that. Yeah. I can also imagine it being somewhat easy to make. But, but it's easy to draw? Not easy to draw, but you could impress the yarn onto wet clay and, like, come up with a pretty sweet looking design <laughs> pretty easily. As a person who has worked with clay and tried to make one of these objects... You tried to make a cylinder seal? I have. And you yes. didn't even know what it was? I didn't even know what it was. Heavens. I thought I was just trying to make pretty designs on clay. I don't know what they're writing on either. They weren't writing on like stone tablets with like clay? clay? Well, like, like a light layer clay, of clay, clay on tablets. it? With a wedge? You got the right people for this. Let me tell you that much. Because I've made one of these. Yes. And it's easiest to make it continuous if you have like some something to wrap around it mm. that wraps back around to the beginning. Mm -hmm. So like if you just use like string with a pretty heavy looking like to it, yeah. you can make a string that is just like your I just string. feel like the scale wouldn't work very well, but I like what you're thinking. Machine? Cool. Economically important. Yeah. And in Uruk seals, we see rows of women with pigtails using spindle whorls, and we also see sitting women spinning with a belt shape. Belt What's shape? Belt shape? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? I'm imagining a Mobius strip, but that's a, I think that's a little much. Like, what's the shape of a belt? A rectangle? A, a, yeah. a loop? Belt buckle? I just I just put some words from the article in there. Yeah, I yeah. I know what this is. What? I would think, I would imagine a belt shape of the world to look like a grand, like the big wheel. You know how Mama has that giant spinning wheel? Mm -hmm. What if instead of, what if instead of having a whorl, 
You had a belt of wood. Oh, okay, like a spoked. A spoked wheel. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm imagining when I Mm -hmm. see a belt-shaped whorl. Okay. Not that there's necessarily a belt on it. I would would love to know, but... That's just an idea. Weaving. Yeah, so moving on to weaving. Weaving is the process of creating two perpendicular thread systems. The warp goes up and down, and you want to keep it taut when you're weaving. And the weft is side to side, and you weave it through the warp. Man, it really makes me think about linear algebra, doesn't it? Rows and columns, rows and columns. I'm thinking about my recent collaboration on textile systems. Ooh, yes, what's but that? what's your recent collaboration on textile? Let's systems? talk about it later. Okay, <laughs> I'm very interested. So weaving probably developed along basket making. We have evidence of both baskets and weaving in the Levant around 9000 BCE, the very beginning of the Neolithic. It's the same principle, but baskets don't need a loom. I imagine because they hold their shape without needing to stretch it out. I guess your warp is sort of the loom or something. Right, it's like sense. you form like the the kind of skeleton of the basket around something, mm-hmm. um, usually like while it's wet. This is what is meant by underwater basket weaving, guys. Unfortunately, oh. you're not underwater. Just your hands and the reeds oh, are underwater. Yeah, it's, that makes sense. Yeah, and it's not nearly as exciting. It makes it more pliable. Yes. Mm-hmm. I imagine rocks were a good thing to, like like a nice large rock. Mm-hmm. To form around. Making a nice shape. Yeah. I mean, I guess, okay, I don't know anything about Mesopotamian basket. Basket weaving. Yeah. I don't know anything about any specific locations of basket weaving. It sounds like they had irrigation. But um, anything I know from school. You would weave your like thinner, I suppose, more flexible reeds around that skeleton. And that skeleton is kind of your loom in a sense, because that's what's holding it all taut. And it's also the warp, effectively, because it's the first stuff that you put on that you Mm -hmm. weave everything through. So loom weights are the most common evidence of weaving in the Eastern Mediterranean. This is a sign that they were using a warp weighted loom. So every other part, the wood, the thread, and everything is perishable, so we're only left with the clay weights. Other types used in the Bronze Age included the horizontal ground loom and the vertical two-beam loom. So was the vertical two-beam loom not a warp-weighted loom? No, because okay. the, the warp is maintained by a bar at the bottom, instead of each individual warp string I having see. a weight on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Jojo, do you know what a warp-weighted loom is? No. Okay. It's cool. Tell me about this. It's kind of, you've got like this frame and you've got all your strings suspended, all your all your warp strings suspended from the top. And then they all have a little weight at the bottom. These would be Sounds like awesome. angular kind of stones or clay pieces. So you don't have to tie it down at the bottom. Yeah, so you don't have to tie it down at the bottom. And then... Can't if you want? I don't that's think the you would. would? No. Okay. The weights. So the weights are what's keeping it in tension. And then there's a... Much easier to work with. A kind of crossbar thingy that you use to create the shed. And there's like a easily... I don't know. Like I've, I've seen like some diagrams these? about how you... Have you played with one of these? No, but I've seen some diagrams. Okay. and um, thought about playing with one mm-hmm. in my imagination. So you do this thing. Oh, because, okay, because it's leaning against a wall, right? And so you've got, let's see, how do you create the sheds? What's a shed again? Oh, I'm sorry. The shed is the little like triangular shaped zone that you can pass the yarn through and you want to like interchange it, mm-hmm. you know, so that you're passing the yarn over the strings that you want to pass it over. And then on the next iteration, you pass under those strings. Mm-hmm. Thus weaving it. That's how that works. Yeah, so there's a natural shed when you've got like the yarn that's at the back is like kind of hanging parallel to the wall and you have the yarn that's at the front is just like out here. And so that's creating a triangle, right? Um, a little, a little right triangle. A little bit of like a really shitty shanty just leaning against the wall. Mm-hmm. More mm-hmm. or less. Okay. Yeah, and then this always bothers me, but, um, <laughs> but they do something to bring part of the back yarn up to the front or maybe you put the front yarn to the back, but I don't know. But anyway, so you create the two sheds and that's, so you pass it through and then you create your new shed and then pass it through and so on. Yes. Could you do this by either A, color coding the weights, weights or B, by attaching the weights to like a rod? They are attached to a rod at the top. Can you attach them to a rod at the bottom and then just switch out which rod you're using? Or would that not work? I think that, that might be how to do it. I don't know. It might be hard to move the rod to the back though. Well, it's not, it's not, you don't do it at the bottom. It's kind of a local thing, but I can't. I see, I see. Yeah. I, there's diagrams in that book. I see how to get this book. Mm-hmm. That's a warp-weighted loom. Okay. Sounds really cool. Weights keep the tension. Kind of 
reminds me Leans of, against the wall. Have you ever seen people make bobbin lace? It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds like what you're describing. Okay, yes, I have. And yes, I think and I know what you... just, like, move around a bunch of strings. Yeah. But this isn't as bad as that. Because you're only moving around two sets of strings. I think you're really only moving one of the sets of strings. And then you've got your string that you're passing through. How did they figure this out, man? They're like, clever. They're clever. They, they took they their time. They knew a thing or two about how to make some things stick together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That they a lot of free time when you're living like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Not when someone's working you to the bone every day to mm-hmm. get their flax done. Mm-hmm. Okay, loom woods. Yeah, so tabby weaving is where the weft slaloms around the world. Around 7,000 BCE, we have impressions in clay. Uh, tabby weaving in Jarmo in North Iraq, the most common form of weaving in the Bronze Age Mediterranean. We say tabby weaving. What I'm thinking of is tatting. I'm thinking of tablet just, weaving. We might know, both be wrong. But tatting, as I understand it, is a weaving form that you can make lace with. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I know so much about weaving lace, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a method that's kind of like bobbin weaving, mm-hmm. where uh, weft slaloms around warp. Weaving, in other words, in and out. Yeah, it seems like, doesn't the weft kind of always slalom around the warp a that's little bit? Yeah. Is that, is that, that a was, useful way yeah. to describe it? It's like if I was a skier and I had a piece of string attached to me, I'd have some fun yeah. <laughs> doing slaloms. Yeah. This just says it's plain weaving. It's, yeah, it's probably the most common type of weaving, but everyone thinks they're going to hear weaving. It's like the introduction to Wheel of Time, you know? It's like things just weave in and out, in and out, in and out. Mm-hmm. They are talking about weaving a lot on that show, aren't they? Yeah, okay, so I guess tabby weaving is literally just plain weave, like one over, one under. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. When did they invent satin? I don't know. Okay. Not enough for a while. Yeah, so in terms of the type of weight you want to use for your fabric. If you want a thick thread, you need a heavy weight. If you need a thin thread, you want a lightweight. If you want dense fabric, you want a thin weight. And if you want open fabric, you want a thick weight. Yep, coincides with what I know about fabric. Mm. The cuneiform pictogram for loom is an open rectangle, so no levers to move anything around. So essentially, turn the loom frame over to manipulate it. Okay. That's funny. Hmm. I don't think you're turning it over like this. I think you're turning it over like this. Mm, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is an audio format, so you're not seeing this. Turning it over I... over the vertical axis. Over the vertical axis versus over horizontal axis. Okay. So it's not moving the fabric from the top to the bottom. It's moving it from front to back. Yes. So Uber textile workshops were run by an N, or a Lord. The fact that they specify this probably indicates that they also had privately owned workshops that don't show up in the temple records. Well, 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 ain't that shady. The cuneiform sign for a textile workshop is the sign for a workshop with a sign for a female slave inside it. And the sign for a female slave is a pubic triangle. Unpleasant. So, female genitalia. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not great. Unlike flax, wool comes in various colors. Okay, that's making noise. Keep the recording on. Because this is where Sammy and I had a discussion. Yes. Mm. Which was, I don't believe you, that flax comes in less colors than wool. I feel like flax sounds really easy to dye. And then Sammy says, That wool naturally comes in different colors because there are different colors of sheep. Just I'm like just sitting here thinking about a rainbow sheep from Animal Crossing. Different and that is not what's colors. going on. Hi, cat. Hi, kitty. Just like people have different hair colors, so too do sheep. And cats. And cats. Thank goodness. We know daddy. Kira mm. took like a bunch of like cat fur, spun it, made it into, like spun it by hand, mm-hmm. just twisting it, made it into a little like crochet sample. Aww. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I, I kind of want to do that. that. I'm just like, I'm yes. never sure if I'm ballsy enough. Anyway. It can be done. Can verify. But should We don't know. Yeah. So white is your rarest and most valuable color of wool. Makes sense because it's harder to make from yeah. the other colors. Yeah. Imagine brown being pretty nice. Black so, wool? Mm-hmm. We got it. Gray, yeah. Uh, so if you want, you can sort the different colors and spin them separately, or you can produce a thread that has some color. What do you call that? Heather? Heather? Variegated? Depends. I was thinking variegated, Mm -hmm. Hmm. but I don't know what the difference is. So we have the first written evidence of dyeing in the 2000s BCE. What? Nobody died before then? (laughs) Things were getting crowded before anyone died. (laughs) (laughs) The first written evidence? 
lying. We've never done it yeah. before. I mean, they didn't write about it before. Why didn't they write about it? Well, they didn't write complete sentences. Oh. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're just keeping records and stuff. Did they, they have symbols for, like, funeral? Well, they're not keeping records they, of people dying? I feel like that's an important... No, they're keeping records of commodities. Like, people? What I about feel people? like people are one of their commodities. Yeah, it's like, they're keeping slaves. So, okay, yeah. We do actually have evidence from the Uruk period, written evidence of people dying. Damn. <laughs> so, never mind. <laughs> So there are a few different ways to dye fabric. One type is direct dyeing, where you soak or boil certain plants in water and then dip the fibers in. So this is generally not that strong on its own. You can make it stronger with mordant dyeing, yep. which is when you combine it with metallic salts to bind to fibers. Like aluminum. Tannins. Is that a metallic salt? I don't know if it's a metallic salt, but it occurs naturally in some plants. Hmm. For instance, avocados. And, okay. But is that a mordant? You don't need to use a mordant when you dye with avocados. I'm not confident that we're using avocados here, but like, don't if you're... If you think about like a wine stain, sure. that shit dies. Okay, but I guess I'm wondering, is this mordant dyeing? Is this mordant free dyeing? Is this... I guess I would, I would call it mordant free dyeing. Okay. The thing is that the tannins itself acts as a mordant. Oh, okay. So you don't have to pre-mordant the fabric Okay. in order to get the color to stick. Okay. It still doesn't stick as well as if you mordanted it. Oh, okay. So you can mordant You can mordant addition. it in addition and it'll make the dye stick better. Mm-hmm. I've only dyed plant materials. So I only know about that, specifically linen mm-hmm. and cotton. I guess you can have a tie-dye. Ah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mordant definitely helps. Yeah. So like if you notice that your tie-dye t-shirt is uh, fading, they might not have mordanted the fabric before dyeing it, and Probably. they should have. Probably okay. not, yeah. Because like, why would you put that much effort into it? Summer camp. <laughs> I guess. You want those memories to last forever. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you could also use vat dyeing. So indigo and mollusks are insoluble, and you can reduce them in alkaline conditions. So fibers absorb the soluble reduced form of the dyes in a vat, and then when you expose them to oxygen, they just oxidize. React to the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they oxidize. Oh, I see. So vat dyeing refers to like like you keep them underwater until yeah. you expose them, like until you're yeah. ready to take them out. Right, and then once they react with the air. Mm-hmm. They turn bright blue or purple. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to do a workshop. I know this is off topic, but I've always wanted to do a workshop about indigo dyeing. Well, I went to like this fair once, and they were like, "Look at what we can do. We can do indigo dyeing on handkerchiefs." I was like, "That is amazing." Nice. And when I went, when I was ready to go up to them, they're like, "We're out of handkerchiefs." Oh, no. <laughs> uh-huh. such a pain. So there are other plants you can use to dye. Woad makes things blue. Dyers matter makes them red. Dyers weed makes them yellow. And you can use lots of plants to produce the colors yellow, brown, or green. Once you have these colors, you can combine them. So, for example, gray yarn dyed yellow will make a greenish fabric. An indigo-colored yarn in a red dye bath will produce a purple fabric. You get art school from this. Huh. Yeah, from here emerged the uh, Western notion of color theory. Do you yeah. know that there are other color theories? Yeah. Like, light like color theory is different. Like what? Light color is different. Okay. Like colors that come from, like, mm-hmm. lights from a new computer screen. Oh, sure. Like RGB versus CMYK. I guess I meant there are other, like, art color theories. Like, there are oh, other... Oh, really? I don't know much about this. I, I just... I never teach yeah, the basic it's like one. A Japanese one. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's just like, it's like, people teach you, like, this is color theory, and you're like, this is color theory, and then you find out that, no, this is a color theory. Crazy. So once you've dyed the thread, you can process it. So the process of fulling involves kneading, stomping, and pounding the fabric to make it denser and more waterproof. Yeah, so this is not done to the thread, but done to the fabric. Sorry, uh, that's a good Smoothing is where you rub the fabric with a stone and create a shiny, smooth surface. You can especially do that with linen. Interesting. So we don't have any finished garments, so we don't know exactly how they sewed stuff together. We do have needles. What are they made of? Copper, and probably before that, bone. Yep, bone sounds right to me. Neat. So if you are sewing fine fabric, you need a thin needle. And for coarse and or full fabric, you need a larger bone needle. Hmm. I imagine. I don't know. Imagination and history is not necessarily the same thing. Hmm. But you remember being like a little kiddo? 
and they give you like a little board with holes in it mm-hmm. and a needle and some, yeah. and some yarn. Yeah. And you just go like, yep, mm-hmm. yep. It's like, don't know what you're doing, but you sure are refining those fine motor skills. Mm-hmm. I bet they did the same thing with children. Probably. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Keeps mm-hmm. your little hands busy. I mean, you got to learn on something. I remember learning how to sew from Bob John. Mm-hmm. She gave me some striped fabric, said, sew a straight line. I was like, what the f***? But it worked. I can sew a straight line now. That's yes. good. Yes. At... Arsene Pepe, which you mentioned earlier. We have a single-eyed blunt needle. Do you know how to pronounce this? Uh, I don't know because I know it has that A with the little loop on it. Oh, true. Can we see it? Null binding? Null binding is the oldest known looping technique that uses one needle instead of two. It's similar to crochet and to knitting. Like, I don't know. I was reading about it to... Because I have, I have like, read a lot about this before and can't really remember anything. So I was reading about it on Wikipedia, like, two days ago. So they are bringing the full length of thread through each loop. Okay, with knitting, you have all these live loops. Like, you have a bunch of loops at the same, um, all at once that are active, and you pull new loops through them. So what you're effectively ending up with is, like, this... Imagine, like, making a kind of loopy sort of length of string, but you're not, like, twisting or connecting anything. The only thing that's keeping them in place is that you are interlocking them with other loops. So you're putting new loops through them, but, like, effectively, one of these rows is just one continuous length of string that you could pull out of all those loops. Calling them live is a very good description for what's yeah. going on there. Yeah. Because crochet is a little bit different in that you only have one live loop. Yeah. And you're putting a little bit of yarn through each loop, mm-hmm. putting it back through what fabric you've created. Yes. Yeah so, you're, yeah, so you're working one loop at a time and connecting that loop to your existing fabric and pulling new loops through it and so on. And so you only have one live stitch at a time, one live loop. So oh. this null binding, mm-hmm. what this? Mm-hmm. Sure. is this the thing that Morgan Donner was doing in her car ride? I don't know. That was very I didn't watch that. She made a hat. Cool. Um, it sounded like what it may have been. describing now. So you're making loops, but you're passing the whole length of thread through every time. So you can you can't work with like you're not going to work from a whole ball of yarn, right? Whereas right, because you would have to push a ball of yarn through a loop. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my god, this sounds really obnoxious. Yes, it sounds like a pain, and it's like one of these things where I was reading about this, and I was like, my god, it's a good thing that people invented knitting and crochet because this is so much better. Yeah. You can work from a whole ball of yarn, and you only have to work with like a little local piece of string at a time. It's a lot more efficient. I'm glad that we have evolved from this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it's also like in the way that a sewing machine, you know, you have a bob and you have a sewing machine, so you can work from a whole spool of thread. Oh, the difference between that and hand sewing, yeah. where you have to pull the whole thread through. Yeah. Okay, I now see why people think it's so much of a pain in the butt to hand sew. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they weren't pulling a whole ball of string through at the same time. They were, like, cutting lengths, doing I, a little bit. I assume. Cut some more, knot it, do it some more. Yes, I would think so. Okay. So I can't imagine taking, like, an hour to pull a single thread from a ball of yarn all the way through They're a f- loop. Yeah, I don't think that that's what they would be doing. But yeah, so you were making a looped kind of structure fabric, like knitted or crocheted fabric. But I imagine it was a far slower process. And I also read that it can be hard to distinguish null binding, null binded textiles from null knitted bound. ones. Null bound. <laughs> See, the thing is, it's like, I, I assume that the, the origin is similar or the same, but I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's just a coincidence. Mm. But yeah, that it can be hard to distinguish um, those fabrics from knitted fabrics. So that's interesting. So Uber Texts record textile distributions to the workers. So in other words, the women and men who produce textiles also receive them from the institutions they work for. Hmm. <laughs> Either as normal distributions for, you know, here's stuff to make clothes out of, or on festival days, it's kind of like a special gift. Mm-hmm. Interesting how we produce the fabric, how we produce the textiles, <laughs> and then the man gives us the textiles back. And gives us a small portion of them. Why don't we <laughs> control the distribution of the textiles, <laughs> lads? A good question. It's a good question that we won't be asking for a while now. Because somebody decided to impose social strata. The gods. So moving on to other types of fibers. Flax was first grown around 9000 BCE. 
Jeref El Almar in North Syria. Like we said, flax needs lots of water, so it would have had to have been grown in gardens. Gardens as opposed to... For example, it is much harder to grow it with rain-fed agriculture oh, as opposed okay. to irrigated. So, you know, you know gotcha. garden implying that it's a small and intensively farmed. Watering so, can, not rain. Flax was used for textiles from the beginning, probably before the Neolithic. It was not primarily used for medicine, okay. as it would be in their areas. Mm-hmm. At Everdue, the oldest fabrics that we have are flax. So to prepare flax, you pull it up by the roots, you remove the seeds, you ret it. In other words, you put it in water for a while so the water can break down the pectin hmm. and make it easier to work with. Yum, pectin. <laughs> All right. Love me some gelatin substitutes. I guess. <laughs> Next, you break it with a wooden club, which separates out the fibers, and then you scutch it, which is the process of scraping away stem and bark, and then you comb the fibers. Fine, you're right. That sounds like a lot more effort than just shearing a sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who is also your little buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Until you eat it. I guess you get less, I guess you get fewer friends from flax, huh? One of the benefits of growing sheep, especially in southern Mesopotamia, where the water is often salty, is that sheep can drink salty water and produce milk that you can drink. Ah, that is salty? So, that's well, not it's salty. not salty, yeah. Huh. So they are kind of a water filtration system. Oh my god, that's amazing. Right? That's crazy. Right? Wow. Yeah. We should bring that back. Banana pants. I'm saying let's bring that back. You want to drink some sheep's milk? I'm not saying that. So based on modern statistics, a 10 by 10 meter field of flax will take you one day to pull out the stems by hand. Give me a sec. 10 by 10 meter. Yeah, so this will produce 25 kilograms of yarn plus 14 kilograms of coarser fiber used for rope. Hmm. Wait just a minute here. Mm-hmm. Are you about to tell me that flax creates less material than sheep? I mean, it's kind of apples and oranges here. You can't count sheep in the amount of acreage of the field. I mean, you can yeah, count you can. how much field it takes to raise. Well, but that's arbitrarily large because they're migrating and grazing in different pastures. So, mm, that's a good point. So, yeah, it's, it is kind of out of the margin. Okay. Yeah, so 25 kilograms of yarn can produce 288 kilometers of thread or 130 square meters of fabric. Okay. At 11 threads per centimeter and 2200 threads per square meter. So, in terms of miscellaneous fibers, wool and flax were the most common ones during the Bronze Age, as we said. Goat hair would have also been somewhat common. On the island of Crete, we have a nettle thread, which sounds unpleasant. Yeah, that sounds awful. They probably had a way to process it. I'm sure. Uh, they would have also used hemp and bast. Okay. Cotton is found in its wild form around 4000 BCE in Jordan, and it would be a domestic crop by the Iron Age after 1200 BCE, but we have no evidence. We're not there yet. During the Bronze Age, yeah. Okay. Silk shows up in the late 2000s in the Indus Valley culture. You're talking 2000 BCE? Yes. Okay, good. I thought you meant like the odds. I was like, I'm pretty sure we had silk before that. Yeah, during the George W. Bush administration. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that anecdote about how George W. Bush sent uh, monks undercover to China to, to like steal the, the, the industry. Like, you know when you're like first taking pre-calculus or some shit and you're like writing limit n to infinity yes. over and over and over again? You're yeah. like, why do we keep doing this? Yeah. This is why we keep doing this. This is why we write BCE every time. So the island of Thera, modern Santorini, the one famous for being blown up by a volcano. Around 1500 BCE, we see evidence of silk-producing insects at Thera. And this might have something to do with the butterfly motifs in Minoan art. Cool. Because it doesn't have to be silkworms. Mm-hmm. Lots of different insects produce silk-like thread. Mm-hmm. And that is that on textiles. We now return to the debate between sheep and grain. Let's get it on. So previously, sheep said that farming tools are breakable and ephemeral, whereas sheep provides the resources for the immortal gods and wool clothes for the kings and the statues of the gods. Again, grain addressed sheep. Your shepherd on the high plain eyes my produce enviously. When I am standing in the furrow in the field, my farmer chases away your herdsmen with his cudgel. Even when they look out for you from the open country to the hidden places, your fears are not removed from you. Fanged snakes and bandits, the creatures of the desert, want your life on the high plain. 
When gentle winds blow through your city and strong winds scatter, they build a milking pen for you. But when the gentle winds blow through the city and strong winds scatter, I stand up as an equal to Ishker. I am great. I am born for the warrior. I do not give up. What can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. So Ishkor is the storm god, and the text of Sheep's Reply has been damaged, <gasps> something to the effect that grain is beaten and manipulated by lowly slaves and servants. Uh, sheep also resents the primacy of grain, however they are both meant to be eaten. Again, sheep answered grain. When a banished enemy, a slave from the mountains, or a laborer with a poor wife and small children comes, bound with his rope of one cubit, to the threshing floor, or is taken away from the threshing floor, when his cudgel pounds your face, pounds your mouth, it makes your body into flour. When you fill the trough, the baker's assistant mixes you and throws you on the floor, and the baker's girl flattens you out broadly. You are put into the oven, and you are taken out of the oven. When you are put on the table, I am before you. You are behind me. Grain, heed yourself. You too, just like me, are meant to be eaten. At the inspection of your essence, why should it be I who comes second? Is the miller not evil? What can you put against me? Answer me what you can reply. Yeah, so grain gets in one last dig. The sheep is turned into a commodity, like milk, meat, and leather, and distributed and measured like a resource, just like grain. So in being useful to humans, grain is also useful to sheep. The ultimate dig. Then grain was hurt in her pride, and hastened for the verdict. Grain answered sheep. As for you, Ishkur is your master. Shakan your herdsman, and the dry land your bed. Like small flying birds chased from the door of a house, you are turned into the lame and the weak of the land. Should I really bow my neck before you? You are distributed into various measuring containers. When your innards are taken away by the people in the marketplace, and when your neck is wrapped with your very own loincloth, one man says to another, Fill the measuring container with grain for my you. Hot damn. So now the god Enki declares a winner. The answer is not much of a surprise. After all, South Mesopotamia was a center of grain agriculture on an industrial scale. Uh, this recalls the little story of Cain and Abel, but with the opposite outcomes. So temples were storehouses of grain, so we get some more on-the-nose political analysis from this myth. Grain would have been the de facto currency. You know, even when they're measuring amounts of wealth and silver, they're usually passing grain to each other. So the temple has an incentive to accumulate grain even at a loss, because people are dependent on that. Isn't grain used as a motif on a lot of coins? Mm -hmm. Okay, an incentive. It's, it's uh, important to a lot of economy. Yeah, so, you know, the temple wants to acquire as much grain as possible at any cost because distributing grain is the basis for its political authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't give it political authority without distributing grain. Like, fuck. <laughs> Where's my grain? You want people to obey your government? You have to give them anything. So we have a brief postscript with the final score. Then Enki spoke to Enlil. Father Enlil, sheep and grain should be sisters. They should stand together. But of the two, grain shall be the greater. Let sheep fall on her knees before grain. From sunrise till sunset, may the name of grain be praised. People should submit to the yoke of grain. Whoever has silver, whoever has jewels, whoever has cattle, whoever has sheep, shall take a seat at the gate of whoever has grain and pass his time there. Dispute, spoken between sheep and grain, sheep is left behind, and grain comes forward. Praise be to Father Enki. Mm -hmm.